0: Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up. Turn it up. Turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christie.
1: Welcome to episode number fifty-one of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm is online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications Newsletter, and you can find that at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we've also got channels on YouTube and SoundCloud, and of course, our newsletter, PR LawPodcast.club. What's happening? I think things are not very good over there in uh, TDOT, are they? (laughs) No, it's pretty bad, Cam. It's pretty bad. Yeah, Uh, I'm hearing. I'm hearing. And not just there, but elsewhere in the country, too.
2: Yeah. I mean, we had the second worst day of the the pandemic last week, Cam, um, in terms of case numbers, new case numbers. Uh, yeah, we're on, we're on full lockdown,
1: uh, all over again. So we're, we're well in the thick of, uh, of a third wave. It's pretty bad. You know, it's interesting how these things kind of ebb and flow though, because like, you know, here we're down to no cases a day, many days. I think we had one yesterday. Um, so it's, you know, it's really in control and people are, people are upbeat. Um, but there's been other places such as Thailand where they've kept control of the, the virus the entire time. But now they're seeing a thousand cases a day. They've had a huge spike down there just as they were getting ready to sort of reopen for tourism. So, you know, I think the lesson here is even when the case numbers get quite low, um, you know, it's no guarantee that things will continue that way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think in Thailand, I mean, they were way behind in their vaccination or vaccinations as well. Right. I think they only started
1: vaccinating like the end of March or something like yes, that. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's sort of two sides to it, I guess, like sort of containing the outbreaks and then, you know, vaccinations. I think the U.S., Israel, uh, a few other countries we talked about before have have done a good job vaccinating. Mine, mine has been moved, though, Ewan. I think I might have mentioned this because, you know, there was a problem with the Pfizer vaccine, um, at least with some of the packaging of a case of it in Hong Kong. So they delayed it for a couple of weeks. So now my, my, my shot isn't till the, uh, till the 19th. But I, I still can't wait to get it.
2: Right. But sorry. But when you talk about a delay, you're talking like
1: two weeks. Yeah. Ten days. (laughs) Right. Okay. All right. Well, that's great. Not a big deal. Um, Yeah. You know, there's another thing I want to mention, Ewan, because, you know, we've been talking on this show about work from home and we had kind of a debate about that. I think it was last week. But, you know, what's interesting is there's some stories that have come out, Ewan, where I think the New York Times had one and I'll put a, a link in the show notes where people are very resistant to go back into the office and some companies are having a hard time with this. You know, uh, Trivago, which is a, a travel sort of website, travel company in, in in Germany, you know, it decided after the after the after COVID-19 to let employees work remotely for three weeks and then come into the office for one. And um, even that didn't work. They said employees came in two or three times that week and they saw it as more of a social time to have coffee and muffins, uh, but that they just they're really resistant to returning back to the office. And, you know, there's a couple stories on this. I think it's something employers are going to have to deal with at some level.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think employers are going to play nice on this in the short term, at least, to try and let employees, you know, adapt to getting back to a, to a workplace environment. But I, I mean, I think on a long enough timeline, Cam, we're going to see a lot of employers who are just saying, no, no, you have, you have to come back. Because they do. I mean, that's that's the thing, you know, employees, at least, you know, here in Ontario and a lot of other jurisdictions, they don't have the discretion to say, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to work from home. I'm going to keep working from home. If your employer wants you to go back, I mean, unless you have some very, very clear medical reason, or it's somehow discriminatory, or you're returning to an unsafe work environment, if your employer wants you to go back, you have to go back. That's, that's the way it goes. And I think, I think- on a long enough timeline, employers are, are, they're going to start pushing on this a little bit more. I think
1: I don't, well, I don't think that's the point. like obviously, if employers want people to come back, they have to come back. I think the the point is that employees, large enough numbers of them are demanding this as uh, a, you know a work life balancer or a way to work. and so I think there's going to be increasing pressure on employers to allow this to some degree. I think that's more more of the issue Obviously if employers put their foot down and say, you got to be here at 8 thirty Monday morning, you know they have to go. But, but I do wonder because, you know, we have gone through a full year almost where, you know, a lot of people have been able to get their work done remotely. And so there's a question over whether it is necessary. And I guess um, I, I, I guess the part that bothers me is that automatic assumption of, you know, when things are back to normal, you go to the office because it means that we haven't learned anything over the past 12 months. Like, I think we have to sort of break that that link between productivity and being at work. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that does apply to a lot of people, but it also doesn't apply to a lot of people. They can be productive elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, and I mean, there's also there's been, I mean, as we've talked about so many times in this show, Cam, a fundamental culture shift around work, and I think that that that's the part that's going to be sustained, you know, well past pandemic and, you know, everybody being vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. And at a certain point, I think it's going to be something that prospective employers or employees are going to to look at when they're considering where to work, right? I mean, if you have sort of two job options available to you and one of the options is, no, you have to physically be in the office, five days a week or, you know, however many days a week. And then you have the alternative of a work from home a couple days a week and work from the office. Yeah, I mean, these these things are going to be draws for a lot of prospective employees. And that's going to be a consideration. Employers are going to have to sit back and seriously explore what are we going to do? I mean, how are we going to address this? And some employers are better situated to doing that than others. By nature, the fact that a lot of them were already supportive of, uh, you know, a work from home program pre pandemic and had the infrastructure set up. And, you know, for, for a lot of employers, I think it will be business as usual, but. There's no shortage of old school businesses that are still out there, Cam, um, who still believe rightly or wrongly um, that employees can't be productive unless they're sitting at their desk in the office, right? And by office, I mean that bricks and mortar office that the the employer rents.
1: Yeah. And I really hope that changes because it does seem like a very dinosaur view at this point, um, because, I mean, at the end of the day, right, like you, you have as an employee, you have deliverables or you have responsibilities or you've got a portfolio of work that you know, sits with you. And theoretically, the timeliness and quality of that work should really determine whether you're succeeding or not or being productive or not. But I mean, that's a bit of a, a utopian idea, I guess. But one more thing on this just before we move on. Um, you know, the interesting thing I, I found looking through some articles on this is the one thing that came up that bothered employees the most was the commute. That is why they wanted to work at home. Actually, there was very little concern about actually being in the office because, you know, once you're there, yeah, you can talk to people. I mean, some people said it was distracting. That's my number one issue. When I'm in the office, there's people coming by, people phoning me, people wanting to chat, uh, even about work or not work. And I find it really distracting and it sort of breaks up my, my working flow. So that, that's my biggest issue. But the commute is is a real one. I think a lot of people who have sort of taken commutes for granted that it's going to take 45 minutes or an hour to drive into work and then realize they can do their work at home. That's now a really tough sell because that's a lot of time. I mean, it might be two hours, two and a half hours when you combine your commute, you know, from door to door. And um, I mean, I think people have found that time, time can be much better spent.
0: Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word. PRLAW Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at PRLawPodcast.com. That's all one word. Ask us at PRLawPodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag PRLAWPOD
1: okay you and take it away well
2: cam we're going back to alabama Uh, all right we talked about love it yeah if you recall last week we were chatting about the union drive at the amazon warehouse in bessemer well yeah the votes are in cam Mm -hmm. any uh
1: any guesses well i know i know the result Uh, Oh, you do. I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of those stories where I got blasted by like fifty, you know, news alerts on my phone. (laughs) So, but the (laughs) uh, (laughs) the drive failed. I understand.
2: Yes. Yes, it did. Yeah. And it's interesting. The the legs that this story had, it got a lot of press here in Canada as well. I mean, it's, it's clearly a big deal even outside of mm-hmm. sort of typical labor circles, which is, uh, oh, yeah. which is interesting to see.
1: Well, you know what, um, actually on that point, you, and you know, the reason for that, like, these are the stories that are the biggest because they touch several different areas. I mean, it's kind of a tech story because it's Amazon, but it's a labor story. Um, and it's also just sort of a story of, sort of a, it's not manufacturing, but it kind of, because there's so many jobs involved, like it just touches on so many different parts of the economy, e-commerce, all of this stuff. So that, you know, that's why I get so much play.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It is. It's a really sort of interesting multifaceted story. Um, mm. anyway, in, in terms of the vote. Yeah. So, I mean, there were what 5,876 eligible voters, only 3,117 cast ballots. So that's kind of, an interesting mm-hmm. stat right off the
1: top. What's what's normal um, for that? Do you know? Like when there's a union drive about what is the, the average participation I, rate? I, I mean, there, there's I, I don't know.
2: I wouldn't say that there's an average participation rate. I mean, it really, really, really depends. So, um, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to say that there's a, a like a specific threshold you would typically see. Um, I mean, of, of the votes that were cast, there were one thousand seven hundred ninety eight cast against the union and Mm -hmm. 738 for and again the union for for anybody who's not familiar with the story we're talking about the retail wholesale and department store union um but yeah they got less than less than 30 percent of total votes cam that was it
1: yeah and i mean i haven't looked into a lot of the fallout from this or what happened or what the reactions have been um i mean obviously the company is going to be thrilled uh with this result i think You know, not because just these these 5000 workers won't be union members, but that, you know, they've they've headed off, uh, you know, a potential drive that could could affect other other parts of the company and other places. So, I mean, it's quite good for them. But what happens to the employees now and, and what's the fallout been from this vote?
2: yeah. well, I mean, the union, for its part, they're they're already asking federal label labor officials to to investigate. the you know the unions filed unfair labor practice charges against Amazon. You know they're alleging that Amazon created an environment of of coercion, that there were fear of of reprisals against workers. Um, of course, Amazon has denied all this. I mean specifically mm, Kim, we're talking about for the, you know for the better part of seven weeks, workers were allegedly forced to attend anti-union meetings, um, I mean things Is that like. Legal? Being- I feel like this should be illegal or or is illegal or is it OK? Well, yeah, that, that, that's a great it's a great question, Cam. So um, I want to I want to put some links in the show notes. There's some been some really fantastic articles written about uh, just this subject and just how much range the employers have in the United States in terms of you know, anti-union sentiment. Um, and it, there's just so much gray area here, particularly when you're talking about a company of, of Amazon stature mm-hmm. and money. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's some of the stuff where, you know, there is these meetings and then in addition to that, they were, workers were allegedly bombarded with anti-union texts. Um, there were even flyers mm-hmm. placed in, in the bathrooms. Um, so, I mean, you know, given the number of unfair labor practice charges, Cam, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if the union ultimately wins the right to hold another election, you know, and that's not uncommon. It's not uncommon for union organizers to make multiple attempts before they successfully unionize a workplace. So I don't think that this story is over um, at this particular plant, but we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens.
1: As somebody who knows nothing about this subject, I find that also kind of odd that they can vote, lose, and then just keep voting until they keep holding these until they until they win. That also seems like maybe not the not not the best way to do it. But I guess it's normal. Well, well.
2: Yeah, it kind of is. It kind of is. Um, You know, it I I don't want to say it's rare for for a union to be successful on their first shot and trying to trying to get into a to a work environment. But Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly not uncommon for there to be multiple, multiple attempts. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I I think you were right off the top. I mean, the, the obvious point here is that Amazon has definitely dodged a bullet, right? Particularly as, you know, we were chatting about this last week, you know, the working conditions, the increased pressures on employees at Amazon during the pandemic. It's really, really put Amazon under the microscope. And it, it sort of looked as though that the union might have some legs here. You know, Amazon had even been, they'd been facing pressure from, from Washington, which is something we haven't really seen Um, over the last couple decades around these issues, I mean, both president Biden and Bernie Sanders had sort of indicated some level of support for the, for the drive. Um, and, but, you know, I mean, ultimately for Amazon, I mean, they launched an aggressive campaign and it it clearly proved to be successful, right? I mean, they were arguing that workers already were paid better than sort of comparable positions at other companies and that they had good benefits, um, And I guess they on some level, they were they were successful in those arguments.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Amazon is well known for being ruthless. I mean, these sorts of issues have come up in the past. Um, I'm not sure if you followed Ewan, but there was um, some sort of angry tweets that Amazon put out um, a couple of weeks ago. Related to this, uh, uh, related to this issue, um, you know, where where they were quite critical of, you know, Bernie Sanders, for instance, on Twitter, and they re- were really firing back at politicians. And you know, it was a story I was thinking of actually bringing onto the show to discuss because it was such an interesting way for the company to to try and tackle some of these issues because it was aggressive, and you know, usually that's not what is recommended on the communication side. Um but you know it came to light later that this is Jeff Bezos and this is his style and he was getting fed up with you know politicians and others sort of hammering at Amazon and so he decided to fight back that way. Um and it backfired. It didn't it didn't look good. Uh it didn't look good on the company. But I think this goes to sort of what you were talking about, you know, earlier that that Amazon, you know, these are important issues to the company. Uh, and you know Jeff Bezos is 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 a, is a fighter, and um, you know it doesn't surprise me that they were putting up you know signs in bathrooms and and you know pressuring employees to to, to try and vote one particular way, um, because I think that's sort of how they do business. And I guess in their they would say that this is you know how they run a tight ship and how they keep costs down and, and how they're able to provide you know the service that they do provide to you know millions of people who you know enjoy that service. So. Yeah, I, you're right, Ewan. This is not the last we're hearing of this for sure. No, 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 not at all. Um, yeah, I mean, this is
2: I think one thing here, Cam, that we we should look at is just, you know, the general sort of trend around unionization over the last, say, 40 years, right? I mean, we've really seen increased privatization of industry, increasing corporate opposition, um, and that's had a dramatic effect on the unionization rates, mm-hmm. right? I, I was looking at, in, in prep for the show, I was looking at a study from uh, the Economic Policy Institute. It, U.S. employers spend about $340 million a year on consultants. Uh, Mm -hmm. to help keep workers from unionizing Mm -hmm. and these tactics, you know, they're, they're incredibly effective. Right. And if we sort of look at the percentage of union workers over uh, the last 40 years, that percentage of workers, it's dropped by half. Um, So, I mean, not not an insignificant swing, you know. And, and I recall you and I chatting about this last week, Cam, off air. Um, we were chatting about Scott Galloway mm-hmm. and 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 his sort of take on unions and and how they continue to have an image problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the other issues I think that they're struggling with is how do you connect with millennials and Gen Z, right? If you think about the drop in unionization rates over sort of the last 40 years, really there's there's a greater chance now that millennials and Gen Zers have been raised in a home where their parents did not work in unionized environments. You know, that, that sort of culture and education around unionization that say our parents were a part of um, and that we grew up around, it's simply not as prevalent as it once was. And I think that that's something that that
1: unions really have to sit back and try and address, yeah, you're right. I, i'm I mean, I kind of agree with 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 Scott Galloway in the sense that I'm not sure unions are the answer. Um you know he did say, are there other vehicles or other mechanisms or other structures that might better protect or negotiate on behalf of 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 labor? I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, that's a big question for people much smarter than myself. But I mean, I, I do see his point. I do think the branding around labor unions has been quite poor. And I mean, I'm that's for a number of reasons, but it's I mean, it's just still there. And also the working conditions now and the economy now is so much different from the you know 40s, 50s and 60s when when the labor union was growing to become so strong in the United States. Um, it's 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 such a different world now. Like there's there there are far fewer blue collar jobs for instance. You know, there's not there's not 100,000 people, you know, building automobiles at GM in Detroit. And and I think, you know, there's still obviously employ employers who are exploiting their labor for sure. But it's being done sort of in a different way, and I think we got to think differently about how to how to try and balance this. I certainly don't don't disagree with your your latter
2: point that we have to think differently about how to deal with this. Right. Um, I mean, I think there's no doubt that there's been an explosion of precarious employment. We've talked about the gig economy. Um, You know, I certainly see this in, in my practice, the frequency with which I have clients coming in that have worked with the same company for 30 years and are retiring, um, are becoming fewer and far between. That's simply just not the reality of the working world anymore. We, we do not see people working for one or two companies and retiring with good
1: pensions. And, um, well, I mean, these working for one or two companies. Like I, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like to me, that's neither here nor there. Like you might work at one or two companies, or you might work at six by the time you retire. But it's not inherently positive or negative on either side. I think what you're getting at there, before I rudely cut you off, was was that sometimes the benefits are impacted by this. And if you're bouncing around a lot, there might not be that pension or that health care coverage at the end of the line.
2: Well, I, I don't think whether you bounce around or not... Um, those pensions they they don't exist yeah, i mean they point. they have largely disappeared yeah. the percentage of positions where you can have access to those those types of benefits no longer exists so i don't actually think that that's reflective of whether you bounce around a lot or whether you don't i do think that there's been a fundamental culture shift whereas if you go back to say the 50s and 60s you know there was sort of this understanding that if you were working for a company and the work was generally decent and your pay was generally decent, you stuck around. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't this sort of cultural ideal of, well, what's the next best thing? Or is there another option out there for me to, to sort of make a move or make a lateral move? Um, Whereas it's sort of difficult to try and conceptualize the workplace nowadays without that particular mindset. Right. I mean, I think most employees on some level are thinking about um, some form of upward trajectory. And if that doesn't exist at their with their current employer, then they're not hesitant about making yeah. a move to something
1: better. Right. Yeah. As a manager, I like this. Like I, I want the employees to be ambitious and hardworking and aiming towards something better, because ultimately I, I benefit from that as a manager. Right, I think it is the people who sort of are, are content and satisfied, and you know, and come in, and and this is it that I often have problems with. Because it's just a different outlook, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm really overgeneralizing here, um, but but I do think the attitude is good. I'm not even sure if it's what's better. If it's it's just growth and challenging yourself and learning and you know new experiences. All of this kind of comes into the to the to the job market as well. And I think this I, I think it does sort of sort of matter to people on the on the pension side. You and it's funny that you you bring this up because you know like you know we've invested in a you know one or two sort of you know, real estate investments. Right. And I've had my parents say like, well, why are you not, you know, buying yourself a nice home to live in and, you know, and, and enjoy and spread out and, you know, it'll be good. And I, and I always tell them because I'm not going to have a pension. <laughs> like I, like yeah, I, I knew you know. a long time ago that there wasn't going to be that net to catch me when I'm 55 or 65 years old. So it's not like, you know, I've got decades of planning for this underway already because you're right, it's not there. And that reality impacts how we live today for many people.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that may be very much the part of that cultural shift that we've we've made that sort of that transition psychologically because we know that we have had to make that transition psychologically because that safety net does not exist the way that it once did.
0: Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRandLawPodcast.com. That's PRandLawPodcast.com. Click support the show.
1: Thanks for helping us out. Okay, you and I have to drop a little plug here for myself. Uh, I will be speaking at the Marketing 360 Influence Uh, conference. It's actually holding a conference with the title Bootcamp for All Things Content and Communications. You can register for this online. I'm going to be a panelist on two sessions. Uh, One of them uh, deals with sort of creating content on a very tight budget. And the other one, uh, which I think is extremely interesting, it's on the issue of whether brands, whether and how brands should take a stand on social issues. And this is something Mm. that we have touched on on this course. And I thought, you know, this is this is going to be an interesting discussion. And so I thought I would bring it up in the podcast uh, today as well, because we've obviously seen some some movement on this even in the past week. So, I mean, you and you're you're familiar with what happened with Major League Baseball, I guess, over the last week. Uh, You know, they were set not even just the last week, but, you know, they were set to have the all star game in Atlanta, Georgia. And Georgia has recently passed a law pertaining to elections that does restrict access to the polls. In reality, I mean, it doesn't state so very very clearly, but in reality, will 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 result in some restrictions to 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 voting for certain parts of the population. We can guess which parts those are. And you know, Major League Baseball has pulled its All Star Game out of, out of Georgia, and it's been hammered for that decision. Um, you know, by Republicans. Uh, who, you know, support this piece of legislation. And Major League Baseball, which is not political. I mean, I think most sports leagues try not to be political with maybe the exception of the NBA. Uh, and I think the NFL has become political since Colin Kaepernick. But but this is something the MLB does not want to get involved with. And it's something that a lot of other companies are are, are landing in as well. So Coca-Cola, Delta are two others uh, that have been criticized for what's happening in, in Georgia. And, you know, Coca-Cola spoke out about it. Uh, Donald Trump then spoke about this, this about Koch's opposition to this law in Georgia, and he's calling it woke a cola. And, um, you know, this is tough. Companies are landing in this situation, Ewan, and it's not easy. And there's a lot on the line. And I think, you know, this is becoming uh, something that companies have to really consider day to day. You know, we've talked on this show in general about the fact that you know there are certain issues that come up. We talked about Black Lives Matter, you know, and the death of George Floyd, things like that. Where you have one case, maybe every few years or every decade, where there's enough social pressure, you know, on 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 your company to speak. But now this is an ongoing issue. It looks like.
2: Yeah, look, I I have I have no issue with Major League Baseball pulling out. I think it was a good move. Um, I think it's good for the development of its brand long term. And here's the thing. This idea that American sports haven't been politicized for a very long time to me is just completely ludicrous. First of all, I mean, you think of looking specifically at Major League Baseball, Cam, if you recall, after the September 11th terrorist attacks, one of the first things that major league baseball did was it changed the seventh inning stretch to, you know, people singing, yes. God bless America. It was no longer take me out to the ball game. Now, look, I'm not, I'm not passing judgment on that decision. However, that decision was an overtly political one, um, that major league baseball chose to make. And I mean, as far as I understand, this is still what, you sing during the seventh inning stretch at major league mm. baseball games, uh, at least in the United States. Is God Bless America? I can say that here. You know, if you if you come to see a Blue Jays game
1: in Toronto, we still sing. Really? Take Me out to the ball game? Oh no, yeah. it's we were in Seattle just two years ago. They sang "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" at the seventh inning.
2: Did they? Yeah. Okay, so may, so maybe they no longer do this. I, I I don't know, or maybe they only do it at select parks. Um, but that was certainly an overtly political decision. You think of the Super Bowl uh, with the idea of military jets fall, flying over or the you know the integration of the military into American sports in general and again, I'm not passing judgment on this one way or the other, but to suggest that professional sports haven't been politicized in the United States
1: for some time, I think is is is, is kind of you know inaccurate Well I guess we should clarify here I, I mean if you're talking about sort of patriotic sort of sort of messages for sure. But I think in terms of Republican versus Democrat, that's an area where sports leagues have tried to avoid just because, you know, you're going to alienate half of your audience regardless. And so baseball, baseball is very careful about not wading into those kinds of issues. If it's, yeah, singing the national anthem or singing God, God save America or whatever. God
2: God, bless America. America. Yeah, it's God save the queen. We're
1: we're Canadians people. We're Canadians. (laughs) Please. I was thinking God (laughs) save the queen. Um, you know, so so I, I do think those things are a little bit, a little bit different. um. But, you know, one thing that I've noticed out of this, Ewan, is it's very similar to what China has been doing. I mean, in the U.S., it is elected officials now pressuring companies. But that's what's been going on in China for a very long time. And I think most recently, you know, we had an issue over Xinjiang Cotton. So, you know, Xinjiang is a is a majority Muslim territory in China. It used to be called East Turkestan uh, before it was part of China. And, I mean, if you read news articles about this, um, you know, there's some serious human rights violations happening uh, in Xinjiang. And, you know, H&M had put out a statement, um, you know, saying that it was not going to use Xinjiang cotton any longer. And, you know, that got picked up in the Chinese media and with Chinese consumers, and H&M is persona non grata in China now. It's done. It's completely done. Uh, In fact, it's to the point where, you know, landlords have kicked them out of shopping malls. They've just closed their shops. Um, If you open uh, Didi, which is sort of China's version of Uber, in which Uber has invested, um, you can't, if if you try and get picked up at an H&M, your transaction won't go through. You can't even be standing out front of one. Uh, to get picked up. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, what? S- yeah, it's really? a, it's a, s- what it's like geo blocked or something. Yeah. You can't, there's just no, there's no way to do that. So, and, and, you know, this is a, China is not, it's no longer a, oh, we want access to this growing market. You know, it came out two weeks ago that, uh, you know, China's going to overtake the U S market in size by 2028 ahead of schedule because of the, the, the COVID-19 situation where their economy has been growing for you know, six to eight months already, um, you know, post-pandemic. post, post pandemic. But this has put, um, you know, H&M is in trouble. Nike was targeted. Adidas was targeted. Uh, several other brands. And they've since issued, you know, groveling apologies and, and talking about how they support Xinjiang, things like that. Um, but it is interesting to see this now turn up in the United States where the same thing is happening. And it's it's all part and parcel of the same thing. These companies don't want to do this. I can guarantee you they don't want any part of this at all. But this is becoming so polarized that they're being forced to choose, and I think, you know, as widespread as this has become already, I think it's going to get a lot worse. I think some companies like Apple are extremely vulnerable. If we're talking about the China example, a huge chunk of their business, um, you know, is in is in China, Um, but it's not the only one. You know, there's there's a lot of brands that are having to deal with this, and I think, you know, in the United States, you and uh, going back there for a sec, I mean, you remember the, the Chick-fil-A <laughs> controversy. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's so many examples of this. So so what can companies do, you know, in this situation? And, you know, I don't have a good answer. I hate to sort of bring that up that way. because And I bring up this subject today because I do want our audience to think about it as well. I mean, from my perspective and in my current role, you know, there have been societal issues that have come up and we've considered whether to speak or not. And there is not yet a clear blueprint or guideline for how to go about this. But off the top of my head, I mean, one area is, is this related to our business or not? And if it's not related to your business, that doesn't mean necessarily that you shouldn't say something. Maybe you should. People kind of laugh in North America, Ewan, about boycotts and, you know, are boycotts really effective? And, you know, yeah, they're not often, even in cases on Fox News where, you know, companies are pressured, for instance, not to sponsor Tucker Carlson's uh, show on Fox. They do drop off, but then they resurface again a few weeks later and it continues. Um, So they're not effective in general, but I think they're getting to be more effective. And I think with Republicans really putting the pressure on companies like Major League Baseball, I do think they could do some economic damage. I I, I really do. And it's, it's a really tough situation to be in. What on what level could there be blowback by
2: these businesses with the Republican Party as well? I mean, they're because, I, I, you know, I, I saw earlier in the week there was was it Lindsey Graham uh, who said, you know, the corporations have no place or no business making, you know, taking political stances or something to that effect to to badly paraphrase the statement. And of course, somebody very quickly pointed out, but wait a minute, where does a lot of your donations come from? They come precisely Mm -hmm. from these corporations. So to suggest that corporations aren't entitled to take a particular political stance on an issue isn't isn't particularly accurate with how the American system works or doesn't work, frankly, is the case as the case may be. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you and the other recent development here is a number of uh, chief executives of, of large U.S. companies actually held a call, a Zoom call over the past several days to talk about banding together on this to speak out against the Georgia law. And I think this is an interesting development. Uh, so some of the companies that were on this call, Pepsi, uh, PayPal, T. Rowe Price, Hess Corp., there were several executives on, on, on the call. And, you know, I think this is a good way to handle it, because I think if companies, they are stronger together, right? Like you, you can't boycott everyone, <laughs> You have to buy your goods from somewhere. And I think this is kind of a creative way to kind of inoculate the business, you know, from any widespread boycott effort.
0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out.
1: On the PR in Law Podcast. All right. What do you got, Ewan?
2: Yeah, I read a, a fantastic article in the Washington Post titled uh, The Strange Journey of cancel from a black culture punchline to a white grievance watchword mm, and i like this already it, yeah it, it um it it sort of details the origin of that of the term like you're canceled the origins of cancel culture and i i was not at all familiar with this and it's a really interesting story that dates back to the early 80s and and involves Nile Rodgers, Cam, who you may know from the, the band Chic, the okay. 80s band. Anyway, the whole story links back to a bad date that Nile Rodgers had in the 80s. Really? Okay. Elaborate. Yes. So he was at a club and the the maitre d' uh, came over and he was going to sit Nile and his his date and his date insisted that the maitre d remove all of the people who were sitting at one of the tables so that they could have it to themselves. And Nile Rogers basically had to sort of interject and say, yeah, no, I don't I, I don't I don't roll like that. That's that's not what I do. And that effectively was kind of the end of the date. Mm. <laughs> that, that That's how it went. And he went home And he was kind of going over the event while he was working on a new song, which ended up being titled Your Love is Cancelled. Oh, (laughs) really? Yes, that was the name of the song. And that is the first first incident that we know of first reference um, of this idea of being cancelled. And from there, Cam, it's really interesting. So the line then shows up in the 90s gangster flick New Jack City. And then again, in rapper 50 cents, 2005 track, Hustler's Ambition. Mm -hmm. And then it made its way to reality TV in VH1's Love and Hip Hop. But it all goes back to a bad date that Nile Rodgers had. um, And of course, has been appropriated in a whole host of ways uh, since that
1: time. Wow. Wow. I had no idea of the background on that. And, you know, the interesting thing is, it isn't still well-defined. This, this term is going to be around for a long time, and it's going to be used by all kinds of different people in different ways. I see how some people are calling it accountability culture. Um, I think that's putting a positive spin on it. But anyway, I, I don't want to get into all this because we, we could be talking forever about cancel culture. But I definitely want to read that. It does sound interesting. What you got? All right. Oh yeah, it's the notorious B.I.G. You and you know, I remember the rap sort of East-West feud back from the 1990s, and um, I mean it was Biggie on the East Coast in Brooklyn, and it was Tupac out in California, and you know there's a. Both of them ended up dead. They were both shot, both murdered. Both of those crimes are unsolved um, at this point. Um, but anyway, I do remember this from the 90s, and, and, and I mean, I remember the music, obviously, but, but not much more than that. Um, and just recently, I had a friend sort of listening to uh, one of these songs, Hit em Up, which is done by Tupac, and I was listening to the lyrics, and I went, wow, that is, this, is, this song is really harsh, and it's sort of really taking a taking a piece out of Biggie. And, um, you know, after that, I went just reading again, just out of curiosity. I went down the rabbit hole and I found a podcast special uh, on Slate's Slow Burn podcast. They look at a different uh, issue every season. And season three, they looked at the East West rap battle. And, um, you know, I really thought it was it was really well done. Uh, It's an eight part series. Um, you know, and I, it, it looks at sort of the, the background of hip hop and rap and, you know, set the stage from the, the, the late 1980s with N.W.A., uh, and Ice Cube, and on into into the '90s uh, with Biggie and Tupac, and uh, all of the other host of characters, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, and all of these guys. So, and, you know, it's, it was it, it's, it's a it's really good podcast series. I do recommend it.
0: The Brooklyn, mm-hmm. business,
1: it. So then I the just, second one you in is you. actually a Netflix special. Um, I just learned the other day that Netflix has put together a documentary on the life of Christopher Wallace, also known as Notorious. B.I.G. Um, and I mean I have to say it's really interesting. It, it focuses on his life more than the feud with the West Coast, um, but his life. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that I was not aware of, and there's a lot of you know home uh, home movie style footage, um, you know, with some of his his good friends who went on tour with him around the United States, and I guess a lot of this this footage is basically never been seen before. So, um, I I would say I I liked it. I I think if you're a fan of this era or these two guys, B.I.G. or or Tupac, it's probably worth a listen. I I thought it was a little bit light, um, you know, on the actual feuding between the two sides. It was more of sort of a look at at Biggie's past, but I mean, both of those for sure. If you're into this, if you remember it, if you're a bit nostalgic, um, yeah, this is a great, great, two great bits of entertainment. Okay. So start with the podcast. I would go with the podcast. I think that's the stronger one. Yes. Okay. Okay. Good. And
2: that's, that's where I'll start because yeah, I definitely, I I remember this. Um, And, and look, I mean, it's just, it's just tragic any way you cut it. I mean, you had just two brilliant, brilliant artists, Cut down in their prime, Um,
1: you know, and the hip hop community's never been the same since, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Uh, yeah, and just the the impact that they had. Like, I've I've even gone back in the last couple of years. I've been listening to some nineties era hip hop, actually, as a result, and it's um like you know, I remember back then it was sort of seen as maybe a fad, like hip hop or rap was kind of just a nineties thing, might might fade away, and it's it's been exactly the opposite. It's uh, it's a whole new genre, really, that really got its footing. Back then, in the '90s,
2: absolutely, absolutely, yeah, hip hop, hip hop rules, man, um, no doubt, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe the guitars will come back at some point in time, but um, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a different world out there
1: now. Yep, it's great. All right, Ewan, we're getting set to wrap this one up. Anything you want to add? Anything? Uh I need to wish our wonderful listeners before we close. Well, yeah, Cam, I do.
2: Actually, I want to wish you a happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you. Know, <laughs> thank I, you. I know it was your birthday earlier this week. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hope you had a good one.
1: Yeah, it was. It was lovely. I mean, I talked about the holidays here in Hong Kong. We had a five day weekend last weekend. And so uh, one of those days was was the birthday. And it was great. Like I slept in. It was a sunny day. went went down to the water. Had a nice meal. It was wonderful, actually. Low key is-, is so good now. Like, I'm just, I'm, <laughs> a, a, ni- a nice time for me is like, yeah, nothing on the calendar and uh, a nice IPA or, or, or glass of whiskey and, yeah, chill out. That's,
2: wow, So you must just be loving this pandemic then, Cam, because it's pretty much been low-key stay at <laughs> home pretty much every day for well, the better part
1: of a year or you know, over a year now. Interestingly, I actually went out on Friday evening because, like, the bars are open here and they have been for a while. And, you know, there was a bunch of people inside of a bar and I was with a couple of friends and we had masks off and we were drinking pints. And, like, we're, we're at that stage here because there's no cases anymore. And, um, you know, we were talking at the time saying like in most of the world you can't do this like you can't sit around and order pints and chat with friends no, so no. yeah it is it's sort of a, a sobering moment to say wow this is we're quite fortunate to be able to even do this at all right
2: yeah even psychologically like haven't you just noticed when you're watching old tv shows oh, or totally. old movies and you see people you see people embrace or sharing an elevator or just getting yep. you know close physically close with know, each other and I'm thinking what are you doing what are they doing what's yeah. going on don't they know oh, oh right oh right <laughs> you know you have to do that double take in your head
1: it's so weird see it's I, weird. G- I get this when I see like sports highlights from a long time ago and I go oh there's there's fans in this stands <laughs> that looks so cool right right because uh, that's so so rare now but anyway they are coming back in the U.S. in a lot of these cities so all right, right. well Ewan uh let's wrap it thanks everyone again for joining us you can obviously follow us on social media please do that um and you know get the word out about the podcast it's the only marketing we've we've really got so we do appreciate that uh and you can get our newsletter as well prlawpodcast.club if you want to stay up to date with new episodes and any other show news that we have to share so for you and christy this is cam McMurchy. light it up
0: This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewing and Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word. P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.